Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits to strengthen Maine's economy by focusing on education, leadership, and quality of place on the web at maincf.org. And that's interesting, but the next thing we have coming up is Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle. You are listening to Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. The time is 10 o'clock. Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations, a new show here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine's Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, our topic is green crabs, invasion, impact, and opportunities. Our guests today are Brian Beal from the University of Maine at Machias and the Downeast Institute for Applied Marine Research and Education on Beals Island, Bailey Bowden from the Penobscot Shellfish Conservation Committee, and Hannah Annis, the area biolog- an area biologist from the Maine Department of Marine Resources. We're going to start with Brian. Brian, are you on the line? I am. Hi, Natalie. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us, Brian. It's great to have you. Sure. Um, Brian, let's start at the basics. Well, actually, let's start with introducing you first. Tell us a little bit about the work that you do at the University of Maine at Machias and what the Downeast Institute is all about. Sure. Um, I uh, have a half-time teaching and half-time research appointment here at, at UMM. I teach courses in marine biology, marine ecology, oceanography, and statistics. Um, I do my research on commercially important marine species. It could be soft-shell clams. It could be green crabs, sea urchins, um, hard clams, et cetera, sea scallops. Um, and that work is done through the Downeast Institute, which is UMM's marine field station, uh, where we do a variety of things in terms of culturing organisms. We, we culture soft-shell clams and work with communities to enhance stocks of their clams with cultured seed. But we also do experiments with them as well as other um, bivalves that we are, um, are growing at the time. So I guess that does it in a nutshell here. Great, great. Thanks. Now, the topic of our show today is green crabs, and there's clearly a big connection between green crabs and shellfish, which we'll get to in a minute. But tell us a little bit about green crabs. Um, I think most folks alive today on the coast of Maine have had green crabs on the shore, might have seen them their whole life. Um, But they're actually not native to this region, is my understanding. Tell us a little bit about how they got here, what the population is like. Sure. Well, um, how they got here is through the ballast of uh, ships during the mm, early 19, uh, 1800s. Um, it's thought that they landed somewhere around Long Island Sound 
around 1817, before Maine became a state, and that um, gradually they made their way both north and south using the same kind of, uh, of aspects of, of how they got here from the British Isles um, to, to, to transport themselves, if you will, both north and south. They reached um, Casco Bay by 1905, so this is the, we're calling this the 110th anniversary of green crabs in Maine. Um, they made it to uh, eastern Maine, Washington County, Jonesport, Lubeck area, um, around the, the mid-1950s, but uh, they really hadn't been seen before then. And they kind of bucked the tide to, to get there since the net movement of the tide is from uh, eastern Maine towards southwestern Maine. And so they did that. They, they moved gradually uh, north and east along the coast um, through, again, marine transportation, as they, as they did when they came over from the British Isles. And so 110 years, that's, that's a chunk of time. Why, yeah. why are we worried about green crabs today? Well, that's a great question. Um, we're worried about green crabs because gradually their populations have grown. And um, in 2011, 2012 timeframe, they seemed to, to explode to a point where, you know, it, it wasn't just the occasional green crab that people were seeing, but they were seeing just populations and densities of these animals that um, they hadn't seen really um, or they hadn't paid much attention to in their lifetime. Um, this sort of thing happened, uh, a population explosion of green crabs at least once before in the 1950s, um, sometime around 1951 through 1953, a very, very similar outbreak or explosion in their populations occurred and it generated an awful lot of concern at that time um, with, you know, what do we do? How do we, how do we deal with them? Um, but um, uh, the, the late 1950s and early 1960s were uh, a time of very, very cold winters, year after year after year, and it seemed that the populations of green crabs declined as those winters became more and more severe. So um, we're, we're kind of hoping that, uh, that that might be the case this year as well as some of last year as well. Why, why do we think that they explode to begin with? Is there any information, yep. any knowledge on that, or is it still well, all in research stage? Well, you know, Natalie, what's funny is, is that there's no one really out there who's studying green crabs specifically, mm -hmm. nor has there been um, for as long as I know. Um, you know, it's, it's one of these things that it's, a, it's an invasive species. It's in the marine environment. It's been there forever. Um, you know, who's interested in it? It really doesn't have any commercial aspects that we, that we know about uh, in terms of, of, of how people looked at it, you know, five, ten years ago. Um, now that there's a, a, a larger population around, some folks are saying, well, geez, can we actually do something with this commercially? But, you know, before, before now, really, you know, we'd all looked at, I mean, myself included, as, well, this is a nuisance, but, what, you know, what are you going to do? Um, so the, the, no one really knows then for certain why the populations have exploded other than there seems to be a really good correlation between water temperature and green crab population numbers, especially water temperatures that are the minimum and the maximum for, for a given year. So for example, you know, when the maximum uh, water temperatures you know, hit into the uh, mm, high 50s and, and mid 60s, um, 
that's really a time when green crabs are going to do very well, and, and even when water temperatures go higher than that. Um, they don't seem to do very well when we get average, um, you know, minimum monthly temperatures in the wintertime of um, 34, 35, 32 degrees. Uh, they don't seem to do very well. So those are just correlations. They're not cause and effect per se because no one really has looked at it specifically. Now, people have looked at the physiology of green crabs and have found that they're very, very hardy um, at, at, you know, the maximum kinds of temperatures that we, that we see, and they do very well even in cold waters. Um, uh, some studies have been done that have shown that green crabs survive just fine when water temperatures go below 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So <laughs> they, wow. they, they are the uh, ultimate uh, uh, invader. Yeah, it sounds like they're they're able to adapt to a variety of different conditions. Where is their um, sort of preferred habitat? Are they intertidal, subtidal, further out? You know, that's what makes them so um, ubiquitous. They are they are everywhere. They're uh -huh. subtidal. Uh, they're intertidal. They're in marshes. Um, they they burrow into soft sediments. They crawl under rocks. And in each one of those habitats, whether it's intertidal, subtidal, rocky, or mud, they're eating a variety of organisms. They're eating clams. They're eating worms. Uh, they're able to actually eat plants, uh, marine algae. If you look at the diet of a green crab, um, it contains you know, probably more than 50 species. We've been looking at the diet of green crabs um, from Freeport in some studies that I've been doing down there with, with clamors in that community. And... Um, we even have found small lobsters in the guts of, uh, of, of green crabs. So, you know, wow. they're out there eating what they can get their, their claws onto, basically. And tell what's happening in Freeport? What, how did you zero in on Freeport as the place to do some of your studies on green crabs? Well, Freeport was really an, an, uh, an inviting town uh, for me to, to work in because the, the community raised some funds uh, a couple of years ago to do some research to find out uh -huh. more about green crabs, and you know they didn't uh, they didn't use any uh, foundation monies or or organizational monies. They they used monies that was raised by the town council, and so I got really an invitation to come down and uh, work with Clamors and learn more about what was going on in that uh, in that area. So I've been able to extend those uh, that that project with some funding from uh, the University of Maine system. Uh, as well as a, a private foundation, and uh, and NOAA, the Salt Stall Kennedy folks have have provided some funds. Uh, so so now we're actually looking um, at the dynamics of green crabs in the Harrisikat River. Okay. Um, in both uh, subtidal and intertidal habitats. Okay, and w what are you what are you seeing in Freeport and and that region? Yeah, well, <laughs> so we started in 2013, and it's like a tale of two cities. Um, in 2013, we were getting anywhere between 8 to 10 pounds a trap, whether or not it was uh, fished or soaked for one day or two days or three days. Um, the, 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 the biomass was, was pretty much the same. And, and it was consistent from early May through at least the, the end of uh, September, and then it kind of rose uh, to, to a little bit more than 10 pounds. In 2014, when we started, um, it wasn't until... August until we got an average of one pound a trap. So, you know, there's a huge, huge difference between 10 pounds per trap and one pound per trap. Mm -hmm. And we were also finding that um, uh, 
we were the, 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 the ratios of males to females was pretty similar from one year to the next. Um, it was biased towards males, about 70 to 30. And, and the, the, the other interesting fact about 2013 was is that when we looked at our samples, we were getting about around 12 crabs um, per pound in the, in the traps. In, in, every, in every pound, we were getting about 12 crabs. So, so it takes about 12 crabs to, to, to make to a make pound. A pound. Okay. But, it, but in 2014, it took about 40. Oh, okay. So, so, the, so the crabs were much larger in 2013. The crabs were much smaller in 2014, but the numbers of crabs in both years was almost the same. Huh. So, yeah, the, the green crabs, and, and everyone knows how cold the, the December was of 2013 into January of 2013, um, and obviously this year we know how cold it's been. Um, but the point is, is that the, the cold, cold weather that we had during that December-January snap, 2013 and 2014, doesn't seem like it, it, it pushed their populations to a, to a you know, very low level. It, it did something to the size distribution, but it didn't reduce numbers. And um, w what are you uh, seeing that they're eating? You mentioned that they eat all kinds of different things. It yeah. Well, in the guts that we've, we've examined, um, we've seen shell, crushed up shell of, of, of soft-shell clams. We've seen um, not a lot, but we have seen lobsters. We've seen the, the seedy, the, the bristles of polychaete worms. Um, we've seen a lot of goo <laughs> that uh, is uh, digestible material that we can't identify. Uh, we've seen some spartina, some, some plants that live in, in, the, in the marsh. Uh, we've seen pieces of uh, macroalgae, like the rockweed and things like that. So we know that, you know, what the literature tells us in terms of their, their breadth of their diet is, is true. And, and we've, we've seen that from the, our samples in Freeport. So they, they, they live in a wide variety of different habitats and at different temperatures, and they eat a whole bunch of different things. Um, yeah. So they're really the, the recipe for an invasive species. They're, yes, they are the recipe for disaster. Uh -huh. <laughs> they really are, you know. And it, what you know, it, when when people think, "Geez, nothing eats green crabs because they're an invasive species," that's as far from the truth as can be. Everything eats green crabs. Okay. Um, you know, seagulls eat green crabs. Green crabs eat green crabs. Lobsters eat green crabs. Rock crabs eat green crabs. Fish eat green crabs. Uh, it's just that their reproductive uh, abilities. Uh, far, far outweigh any kind of, of uh, consumer that can try to keep them in check. And so that's what happens. Consumers are not keeping them in check. The only thing that really is keeping them in check, it seems, is the weather. Is temperature of yeah. the water. And what's the, the basic life cycle of the green crab? Yeah. Um, so, so they, it, it looks like, and this is, this is from uh, information from a fellow named Beryl that, that worked in Maine around the middle of mid-1980s, who actually did a study. I think it's the only one that I can find that's been published in Maine. Um, but what he found was that cr green crabs in Maine have a, a seven- to eight-year life cycle. Uh, they can reproduce mm, two to three times during that uh, cycle. They're reproducing um, when they shed, and um, they're, they're shedding in... June, July, August, and so they're 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 mating. Then um, the eggs are internal for a few months, and then they um, are uh, 
They come out on, on the abdomen of the, of the female. They're extruded, just like a lobster. Uh, they're extruded on the abdomen of, of the female, and um, they will appear sometime between March and May of the following year, and then those eggs will uh, develop, and uh, they will be released sometime in June, July time frame. They'll be planktonic. The eggs will be planktonic. The larvae will be planktonic for um, maybe about a month, and then they'll settle at sizes of around a millimeter um, sometime in late September, early October, and November. And as soon as they settle, as soon as they settle, and, and this is the thing that, that most people don't understand, once they settle, they're just a, you know, they're just a predatory machine. So the one millimeter animals that, you know, you really need a microscope to, to really see, they're out there feeding on the soft-shell clams that have just settled that are a fifth of a millimeter. So, you know, a, a one-millimeter green crab is five times larger than its prey, a soft-shell clam. And, and so they're just, you know, there's a war going on out there at the microscopic level mm -hmm. that really is the, is, sets the tone for commercial harvests of, 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 of uh, soft-shell clams. Everyone thinks, well, you know, there's a one-inch clam and, and they, they see that a green crab has, has consumed it and that, you know, there's a 50-millimeter green crab, a two-inch green crab, and it's preying on clams that are an inch or inch and a half. And, and certainly those crabs have a huge impact on clam populations, but, but nowhere near, nowhere near the kind of impact that, a, a, you know, thousands and hundreds of millions of, of these one-millimeter green crabs that are settling to the flats in the fall and are, that are preying on soft-shell clams that are also settling um, I mean, it's, it's just this, it's, it's a war between the growth of, of green crabs and the growth of soft-shell clams. What, which species can grow the fastest and, and get large enough so that they can win this, win this war with, 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 with the green crab? It's, it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a murder mystery. It's really interesting. Wow. And I know that you've been studying the soft-shell clams for decades maybe, certainly a, a number of years. Um, and um, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you could just tell us what you're seeing in terms of clam population changes that you think might be attributed to the green crab. Well, I have been studying soft-shell clam populations for a long time, uh, but most of my focus has been here in eastern Maine, essentially between Lubeck and, uh, and, and Jonesport and, and the Beals Island area. I have ventured out and worked in places like Castine and Rockport and Wells and Kittery and, and things like that, but there has, I haven't done the long-term sorts of, of projects that, that I have in, in Down East simply because it's a long, long way to go. But um, what I've seen down here recently is, um, I'd say since around 2007, maybe 2005, that um, when I put out soft-shell clams that we've raised at the Down East Institute. And these are, these are field studies that I, that I do annually with my classes here at UMM. Um, you know, I've been finding that the, the mortality rate of clams has, has actually increased to a level where even sometimes protecting them with flexible netting that always used to work um, doesn't. And it doesn't because, you know, the, the apertures on the nets that I'm using are a sixth of an inch uh, and a quarter of an inch. Well, 
gee, that doesn't that doesn't keep those one millimeter crabs from crawling in and then basically shedding and then growing up to a size where now they're they're locked in, they can't get out, and so they they prey on on clams that are within the protected areas. So you know, uh, I'd say in the 1990s and early 2000s, if I put out clams and protected them. Um, and when I say put out clams, I'm talking about clams that are a quarter of an inch, maybe a half an inch in size. If I put netting over them, I could get somewhere between 70 and 80 percent to survive. And then, you know, against that, the ones that weren't protected, maybe 20 percent would survive. Well, since 2006, 2007 time frame, even when I put netting on, I might get 30 to 50 percent to survive. Mm. And if there's no net, maybe 2 percent to survive. So wow. I've seen, you know, a huge, huge difference in uh, the survival of these clams. And, you know, it, it goes for wild clams as, as well because wild clams settle into my plots as well, and, and their fate is sealed when green crabs are around as well. Hmm. Wow. Um, be, before we let you go, um, uh, two, two sort of wrap-up questions for you. One is um, sort of what's the, what do you see as the, the sort of biggest needs in terms of addressing green crab? Um, and then also if there's students out there who are listening or other folks who would like to hear more about the work that you're doing or, or be a student of yours, how they might be able to get in touch with you. Sure. Well, you know, I, I'm convinced that the only way that we're going to get out of the green crab problem is to eat our way out of it. Huh. And um, I, I think that, that that means that either we develop markets that um, uh, and find markets uh, where people who are accustomed to eating, uh, you know, what we might consider in our normal diet something weird. I mean, I've been to, to Japan and I've seen how the Japanese market things like the mantle of scallops, something that no one else would ever even think of considering eating. You know, they, they kind of put a, kind of a, a sugar coating on it, and they package it up, and it's kind of like candy. And then, you know, other parts of the scallop are also eaten and consumed. Um, I'm thinking that, you know, a, a less something less than an inch uh, green crab could be baked in some, you know, delicious uh, seasoning coating put on it or baked into it, and you eat it like a potato chip or something. I don't know that I would, but I'll bet you <laughs> that there's someone out there in the world that would. Um, and, you know, if we could if we could develop something like that, um, maybe maybe we could we could eat our way uh, out of this problem. But Great. I don't think we're going to fish our way out of it. And I okay. don't think we're going to make cat food our, cat food our way out of it. Um, but if, if folks are more in, uh, are interested in uh, learning more about it, I, I would uh, uh, ask them to get in touch with me here at the University of Maine at Machias. Um, I'm on the UMM website. Uh, my 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 number in my office is uh, 207-255-1314, or you could reach me at bbeal at maine.edu. That's b-b-e-a-l at maine.edu. And uh, thanks again, Natalie, for having me on this morning. Thank you so much, Brian. Have a great day and good luck with the research. Okay, thanks. Bye now. If you're just tuning in, um, we're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor and streaming online at weru.org. Our topic this morning is green crabs, invasion, impact, and opportunities. And if you just heard Brian talk, um, maybe there's some opportunities and some neat food out there for green, 
um, that could green crab could be turned into. Um, so we just heard from Brian Beal from the University of Maine at Machias and the Down East Institute for Applied Marine Research and Education, who's been doing all kinds of research related to green crab predation and life cycle and how they impact other species and what they're eating. Um, in the studio with me today, I have two other folks who know a whole lot about green crab, though they reminded me at the beginning that there's still so much we don't know about the species. Um, but I'm joined by Bailey Bowden from Penobscot's Shellfish Conservation Committee. Hi, Bailey. Hi, how are you? Great. Thanks for coming. And we also have Hannah Annis, who's an area biologist with the Maine Department of Marine Resources. Good morning. Hi, Hannah. Good morning. Great. Um, so, Hannah, tell us a little bit about what an area biologist at Department of Marine Resources does. Uh, well, yeah, the, the main part of what we do is work with municipal shellfish programs. Um, these are programs that were, uh, 1963, the Maine legislature um, enacted that towns could um, enact a, an ordinance that would allow them to have certain controls and activities they could do to manage certain shellfish species in their town. So we work with these towns to help develop the ordinances, um, walk them through the process, you know, um, talk about the laws and the regulations, and then help through the paperwork, of course. And then we also participate with them in the field, helping them to do some of the activities that they might do, like reseedings or surveys, uh, enhancement of the resources. Great. And um, I know that you spend a lot of time in the field and you're also attending a lot of municipal shellfish committee meetings and that kind of thing. So um, we'll make sure to ask you some questions about what you're hearing from people in the field and what you guys are observing out there. Um, Bailey, you're coming at it from uh, the municipal perspective. You're a resident of um, the town of Penobscot and you are also the chair of the Penobscot Shellfish Conservation Committee. So tell us a bit about what the Conservation Committee does. Um, we have tried to increase our resources so we could have a sustainable fishery for our commercial harvesters and our residents. And the green crabs unfortunately came in 2012 and ate most of our clams in our community. And t give us a sense of scale. How, how, how important was the clam fishery before that? Now, I know that you grew up clamming with your family um, and have spent a lot of time out on the flats. Um, and there's also a, there was a significant commercial fishery, if I understand correctly, in Penobscot. So what's the scale of change that you guys have been seeing there? Right. In, uh, prior to 2012, our annual landings were around 150,000 pounds annually. And once the green crabs came in 2012, they wiped out our 750-acre resource of Northern Bay, and we're probably down to under 10,000 pounds annually harvested now. Wow. So in one year, you went from 150,000 to less than 10,000. In one summer. In yes. one summer. That's a dramatic decline. Hannah, how does that, have you seen that in, in uh, other communities in the region? Is that a little bit more extreme than what we're seeing? Well, I, you know, I think definitely it was definitely extreme what happened in Penobscot. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a, it's a complete wipeout there. I, I think most, I mean, green crabs are everywhere, as Brian, you know, um, detailed for us. And I think all towns are experiencing predation in one form or another. Um, I think it was, I don't remember which town it was, but I know it was Chris Heining in southern Maine has been doing clam population surveys. And what they're seeing there is a total um, 
total collapse or there's just uh, certain cl- juvenile clam classes are, are gone. Um, so there are those, what it means is those clams that were hopefully going to grow and become available to commercial harvesters are now gone. So, I, you know, I don't know um, how far spread the impact is like Penobscot's had, but definitely I, I think all, you know, all towns are definitely feeling impact here. Mm-hmm. And Bailey, are um, so it, it sounds like the, the decline that you've seen in the clam, I mean, that's just so dramatic, but it, it, it seems like you're correlating it pretty definitively to the green crab. It, it is, does it feel like a cause and effect yeah, absolutely. We saw the uh, signs of predation, chipped shells, okay. and a lot of divots in the mud where the um, crabs had burrowed in and dug up the clams. Plus, we could see them. There okay. were just, you know, hundreds of thousands of green crabs scurrying around. And uh, DMR was kind of skeptical if this was happening, and... It was there was a concern that it might be ocean acidification, or neoplasia, which is a type of clam leukemia. Okay. So we gathered samples and had those tested for the pH and for the neoplasia, and those tests came back all within normal ranges, which kind of pointed again towards a green crab issue. And describe for us um, the the marine environment around Penobscot. So yeah. are we talking mudflat, rocky shore? What's it like in your waterways? Right. We, we have the perfect growing conditions for green crabs. It's a really shallow, warm estuary, and our flats are pretty much 100% soft mud. So the green crab is able to burrow in very easily. You know, they, they have a harder time digging into gravel or rocky or substrates. But with the soft mud, they can just wiggle their legs, and it turns the mud into silt, and they can really go deeply very quickly. And it's also a perfect habitat for softshell clams. Right. Very productive uh, shellfish growing area, or it was. Um, And so the big change that you saw, I think you said, was in 2012? Yes. And then how did 2013 and 2014 look? Um, When we tested uh, for the neoplasia and the pH test in 2013, Hannah came down and we took samples and we needed 40 clams of any size. And it would take an hour to get 40 clams. And prior to this, you know, we were landing 150,000 pounds a year. So that's a huge difference in the population. Wow. Um, we, we did uh, a lot of survey work. And you take a one foot by two foot square area and every 100 feet, you dig up a sample and sift through all the mud through a window screen. So you're really getting all the small clams, you know, to the mature clams. And we were finding basically no clams. And uh, paint a picture for us a little bit. When, we, when you were a kid going out clamming with your family, how much were you, you know, getting? What was, how was it back then in terms of the, your, your memories as a child? Right. There, there were always clams. I mean, it was cyclical like uh-huh. any other fishery. You know, you have your boom years and years where it's not so good, but nothing like this. I mean, wow. now, now we're down to almost nothing. That is, that is just amazing. Um, Hannah, I know that the Department of Marine Resources has conducted, um, I think, a statewide survey to kind of get a fix on the extent of the problem. Um, can can you tell us a little bit about what, what, what that was, how it worked, when it was, and, and what you found? 
Yeah, I, 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 um, I'll try to go down through some of the highlights of it. Great, um, thanks. Yeah, and this report is also available on the department's website, so if anybody wants to go there and read the entire um, report. And what's the website? Uh, let me see here. I brought it with me because okay. I wanted to give that out. Um, the department's website, we have a website for green crabs, and we have a lot of good links. Actually, We actually link to the DEI where Brian works as well, and there's a lot of information um, you can get from from a lot of those links, but uh, the website would be www.maine.gov forward slash dmr forward slash green crabs. Great. Um, but yeah, the the one day green crab trap survey that was something that we worked with Dr. Beal to develop, and then the department coordinated and carried out. And it was to basically conduct a snapshot um, of the relative abundance and distribution of green crabs along the Maine's coast. And it was also used to um, increase awareness of green crabs and the problems that they bring. Um, the data was uh, pretty much collected by volunteers and. Um, Pretty much, um, let me see, it, it pretty much showed that, that we, green crabs are everywhere. Um, we conducted it along the main coast from August 27th and August 28th, and um, people were asked to set baited traps in areas that either were currently or recently uh, good clamming areas for them, and in shallow waters, you know, about less than 20 feet at low tide. And then those traps were set, and they soaked for 24 hours and were, were pulled the next day. And then the, the haul of the catch was basically measured using five-gallon buckets. And then from there, we were able to place some scientists from DMR and from Sea Grant with some of the volunteers to take some further biological information, like the size of the crabs, uh, this look at the sex ratios, and look at where the females were in reproductive and uh, when you say traps, were, were you using, were the volunteers using lobster traps? Were you, they using specialized traps? Yeah, we, we didn't really, because we knew it was volunteers and it was happening at a pretty quick time period, we didn't put any um, parameters on that. And we figured lobster traps where we're, you know, a lot of lobster in the state of Maine would be pretty accessible mm -hmm. to everybody. So uh, I think lobster and crab or modified crab traps were the most widely used uh -huh. um, as far as the traps go. And um, I think we had, we had 28 towns participated. Four types of traps were mainly used. It was lobster, crab, I think modified shrimp, and maybe some modified eel traps. And there might have been some other, you know, some designs that people were interested in just coming up with and trying. Um, the data that was collected and recorded was a little bit inconsistent, so it kind of um, it, it kind of played into how we looked at the results and interpreted them. But it ultimately it did show that you know what a lot of people were saying that green crabs are everywhere and they're in a population that's detrimental to our you know our shellfish resources. And so ultimately, I think it validated like a lot of things that P Penobscot was seeing and saying that this is a problem. Whereas I think it also brought some um, realization to others who weren't aware of why, you know, what the predation was and why they were seeing destruction to habitat. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, it was a, it was a, there was a lot of simple goals, but I think it, you know, it, it got to the heart of the matter that green crabs are everywhere in the state of Maine and they're a massive problem to our commercial resources. And if, um, if in the last year or two, presumably because of the cold winter temperatures, we've seen the crab population maybe not quite as explosive, is it safe to assume that the clam population might come back or do we not know? Either one of you. 
this might be we just don't know. There's so much we don't know yet. Well, I, you know, there has been some reports, and we have had some observations of a, a pretty good seed set this year in some places. And can you explain what a seed set is? It would be, you know, it's um, when the clams go through reproductive, and like Brian said, there's a planktonic, and they're floating around, and then, and then when they get a certain size, the, the juvenile clams start settling down onto the flats, and those are what we call the settlement. It's, it's this year. It's the brand-new clams, the zero-year-class clams. And we are um, getting quite a few reports of some substantial sets. What happens is I think the winter might play a little bit on that, um, how those clams survive. And then we'll have to see what happens this summer as far as what the green crabs, what the impact of the green crabs is going to be on that set. Yeah. Um, if you're just joining us, we're listening to you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. Our topic today is um, green crabs, the invasion of green crabs, and the impact that they're having on on the coast. And um, we'll uh, we'll also sort of explore the idea of opportunities related to green crabs, and we can explore if that's the appropriate word or not to use for them. Um, but I did want to say that we'd welcome your calls or for questions or comments. Um, if you would like to chime in to this conversation about green crabs, our number um, here at the station is one 625 9378 That's one 625 weru So feel free to call in with any questions or comments that you may have. Um, so opportunities is there so brian you know i asked brian what what needs to happen he suggested what about if we looked at it as, as a an opportunity for food bailey what do you, what do you think is that they make great fertilizer okay that i do know yeah but, have you uh, used it yes yeah i tried some in my compost pile it works really great okay but trying to turn that into a commercial activity is you know that's just not going to happen not at the scale that we need to to get rid of these green crabs or to at least, you know, knock the population down to a manageable level. So in your case, did you just collect them and throw them in your compost heap? Right. Our shellfish committee had a uh, special license, which was issued by DMR to try different trapping techniques and different baits and things like that to see what the population was and what we could do. And we were getting a bushel of green crabs per lobster trap per set. Wow. And that would be, you could set your trap in four hours and have a bushel. So oh, you didn't have oh to wait goodness. overnight. Yeah, there were, Penobscot was really overrun with green crabs. And um, remind us about how big a bushel is. Um, Just, is two five-gallon pails. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Um, I think we have a call. Um, Billy from Augusta, welcome to the program. Uh, yeah, thanks very much. This is uh, extremely interesting. I'm I'm not someone that uh, I did do some, do some clamming when I was younger, but more of a family type thing. So great. Uh, it's a huge concern. Obviously, is there is there a way to trap them efficiently, possibly for home farm use as a fertilizer? And um, you know how how would someone go about getting it? Either a permit, or would you actually need a permit for something like that? That's a that's a great question, Billy. I was wondering that myself. If uh, you or I could just head down to the shore and harvest some green crabs, either for us or for our commercial business, Hannah, what's the what's the law say right now? Yeah, I'll, I'll um, take that one. Sure. Um, so there there what there is a law. I mean, regulation. Excuse me. Um, Twenty five point four zero. If anybody wants to look at that, and. Um, 
because of the amount of concern that was coming from towns like Penobscot and Freeport and every place, Brunswick, Frenchman's Bay, you know, every place that was experiencing this huge green crab population, the department went through a rule and adoption and ch- made some changes in that regulation. Because um, before, um, lobstermen had to have a separate green crab license because the commercial license basically is your ability to sell. Okay. Right. So... The green, so lobstermen had to also have a green crab license only to have and keep green crab and sell green crab. And I don't remember what the fee was at that time, like $38. So the department went through some rule rulemaking changes and to try to streamline and make it easier for people to take green crabs out of the environment. So they allowed lobster lobstermen and crab fishermen holders to be able to you know take green crab as a bycatch and sell them. Um, there are personal use exemptions. So... As long as you don't want to sell those, anybody is allowed, you know, I think there's a special licensing maybe potentially process, but um, anybody who wants to use them for personal use is allowed to go out there and, and trap them or, you know, take them under approved methods. Okay. And, you, and the other thing you need to be mindful of is you have to use approved bait as well. Um, but the best thing to do is if you want to go do that is to contact, you know, work with the department, work with the area biologists and Marine Patrol. Um, and they also reduced the price of the license um, to $10 for residents and $20 for non-residents. There are some trapping requirements, you know, what the trap needs to be as far as some design requirements on that. But again, Marine Patrol is really helpful in, in walking through that. And what are the baits that oh, are geez, being used? I, well, the baits, I mean, I think a lot of people at the time were, <laughs> there are approved baits and not approved baits, but I think people are really trying um, trying a whole list of things, whatever they could get their hands on, because as Brian said, green crabs will eat just about anything. Um, a lot of a lot of clamors and fishermen were using anything from what lobstermen were using for bait uh, to clams. Um, I've heard, you know, other things, people were throwing their, chick, their chicken in there, uh-huh. um, Cans of cans of tuna or sardine. There were all kinds of things tried, but there is a list of approved baits. Okay. And again, Marine Patrol is uh, are the best people to check to make sure that you're in compliance with those you know with those regulations. Great. And um, uh, Billy, I just wanted to say thanks for that question. Great question. Um, Bailey, you said that your committee, the Penobscot Shellfish Conservation Committee, had got a, a permit. Was it so that you could harvest? The clams, how did that work? What was that process for you? Um, yeah, it was I mean, a, not clams, crabs. Crabs, <laughs> right. It was a special license from DMR, which exempted us from pretty much all the rules, regulations, and laws regarding trapping just to see. We, you know, we were on the, the uh, tip of the spear, I guess, to try and see what the green crab situation was. So we were really collecting biological information for the department, so we were given a little leeway to uh, to investigate, really. Um, and uh, I, Hannah, you mentioned that there was the laws had changed for for lobstermen. I'm curious, from what you two are hearing from lobstermen, um, how much are they? How many green crabs are they hauling up in their traps, incidentally, without targeting green crabs? Are, are lobstermen seeing a lot of crabs in their traps? Uh, I, I think, you know, Billy, I think Billy can probably add to this too, but it seems like the the responses vary, I think, depending upon where you're fishing. Uh, I, a lot of the guys that fish close to shore, I've, I've talked to some guys that fish around Frenchman's Bay, and they're fishing close to shore, they're having a hard time keeping their traps uh-huh. baited. The green crabs are coming in and wiping the bait out just as fast as they can bait them and set them. And they're not, they weren't seeing as many, this was in the heart of it when things were really bad, and they weren't seeing... Many lob. There was more green crabs in the traps than lobsters. 
Wow. So I think it was really impacting the guys that fished close to shore. I don't know what the impact was for, I don't think it was as severe out to sea. I think they were still seeing larger green crabs in deeper waters. I, I know Billy has some experience here, but I think there were some impacts um, as far as what they were seeing, you know, close to shore. Right. In uh, 2013, 2012 and 13 in Penobscot, um, like I said, we're a shallow water area. The lobstermen were actually displaced. The lobsters were displaced. The rock crab were displaced. It was strictly green crab. Mm -hmm. That's all you could catch. Whether the lobsters actually left or if they were just outcompeted, you know, if the green crabs just outcompeted the lobster for the food in the trap, is you know, we really don't know. But all you could catch was a green crab. And now that we have no more shellfish, I mean, we, we don't have any mussels. Uh, the periwinkle supply has gone down. The eelgrass has been destroyed. Um, the, the green crabs seem to have left because there's nothing left to eat. Mm. And we're starting to see rock crab and lobsters again. I okay. mean, they came back almost immediately. Huh. Um, can one of you describe what a green crab looks like uh, for someone who may not know which crab we're, we're seeing, how it compares to rock crab and Jonah crab? Well, I, I know the lot of identification that we tell people is that when you look at a green crab, um, if you're looking from the top, you know, if you're looking down the top of the crab, on either side of the eyes, there'll be five prominent points. And then between the eyes there are three rounded points. They're generally green, but not always. Their color may change depending upon where they are in the molt and reproductive stages. And the back flippers are maybe a little bit thinner because they are related to the blue crab. Okay. Um, I don't know if Bailey has anything he wants to add, but that's, that's kind of how we've been um, explaining it to folks. Yeah, I think that's the easiest way. Those five spines on the side uh -huh. of the shell, that's the easiest way to tell, for me anyway. And is it safe to say that if you're roaming around the intertidal zone, the shore, and you see a crab, chances are better that it's going to be a green crab than a rock or a Jonah because they're more subtitle? Is that is that correct? That's what I would say, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay, great. Um, so I'm I'm curious if, um, so it sounds like DMR is, is already changing the regulations a little bit and the legislatures are also changing the regulations to make it easier to harvest green crabs, would it ever become a managed fishery? Um, hopefully, if Pat's listening, I hope I get this right, our commissioner. <laughs> I, I did a little bit of reading before I came today, and I did find a, a, when we had the Green Crab Summit, I think it was in yep. 2013 as well, and I, I did see a quote from Pat that, you know, said that, you know, obviously the department's interested in listening to ideas about, de 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 uh, excuse me, advancing um, economic opportunities, but when it's all said and done, the department does not want to, uh, you know, manage such an, an, a disastrous invasive species. For, you know, manage them for a sustainable fishery. Yeah, it seems like that would be pretty complicated and trigger potentially. I, I don't know how that would work. It just seems very Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's definitely a tricky situation because it makes it hard, I think, for um, commercial markets to pop up and stay if there's uh, not a good source of product. Um, but again, you know, with the, just the, the impacts that they're having to our native important commercial species, you know, I think it's safe to say the department's not interested in managing for sustainable fishery. Yeah, the priority is protect our existing fisheries. Yeah, I think we'd like to see them. I mean, I don't know if it's if it's possible, but I think we'd love to see them eradicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what do you guys think? Oh, actually, before I go there, um, I... I just, I think it was yesterday or the day before, saw a headline from a newspaper in, in Nova Scotia that was talking about how Nova Scotian lobstermen are um, 
have been experimenting with using green crabs as lobster bait. Um, what, what, what have you heard about that? Okay. Yeah, have either <laughs> of you heard about that? Do you know about the, these experiments? I just, um, that article was recently shared with me, and from my understanding, there's some researchers that are saying that it looks like the, the green crab bait is potentially transferring a parasite, or is transferring a parasite to lobsters that's um, weakening their condition and making them more susceptible to predation, or you know, weakening them, potentially death in the processes of handling them between catch and market. I don't, it's relatively new, so I don't mm-hmm. know a lot more than that about it. So it, it, it sounds like a lot more... Um, Investigation needs to happen before we encourage lobstermen to think about using them as bait. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of questions that come out of that is, you know, how, how is that parasite transferred? And is it, you know, is it through because they're broken in bait or is it just transferred in general? I mean, I don't think we know enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we definitely need to be looked at further. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Bailey, for the town of Penobscot, what are, you, um, what are the next steps? What are you guys going to look at this coming year and, and how? What's, where are you going to head next in terms of thinking about and observing and monitoring green crabs and clams? Right. Um, basically, we've just let nature take its course. Uh, we didn't have enough manpower, and we really couldn't get approval for any method to do a green crab removal on a large scale. And we kind of, our, our intuitive thinking was once all the food was gone, the green crabs are either going to eat themselves or leave. And that appears to be what has happened and we are just waiting to see you know what's going to happen next we're we're afraid that the the clam population will recover to some extent but at that point the green crabs will just come back and you know devour what what has grown in the last year or two Mm -hmm. that's our biggest concern so we're just going to keep an eye out we're going to do some survey work to see you know what the size is and like anna said if we had a a good uh, recruitment from the last two years. We're, you know, we need to see what our population is, and then just see if it gets eaten by green crabs in the future. Has anyone, has any municipality or anyone, sort of mounted a larger eradication approach? Yeah, I mean, historically, I mean, like Brian said, green crabs have been around for he said 110 years, and you know, the different people have tried things over the years, and. It's been proven um, that barriers such as fencing and, and netting are definitely effective. I mean, they're, they're, the, the problem with those is that it's, it's, it's intensive. And, it, you know, the, the scope of trying to fence and net an entire town is, is pretty restrictive. And I think, uh, you know, currently Freeport's doing a lot of work looking at um, netting and fencing and trapping. And they're, you know, I think looking at the scale of it, what's realistic, what, you know, what can a town do? And when you look at the scope and scale, some of these towns have hundreds of eight, tens and hundreds of acres of flats, and you just can't fence and net and trap all of that. It's just not effective. And so I think what, you know, Freeport's looking at is is kind of looking at municipal aquaculture, it, you know, maybe looking at is it, it's, it's probably more realistic to fence and trap and, and net in an acre or two. And then could that supplement some of the wild harvest um, and, and take that, you know, take that green by netting and trapping and fencing in those smaller areas that would, you know, hopefully reduce the green crab threat and predation there. And again, supplement some of the wild harvest as well. Interesting. And how, physically, how does netting or fencing work? Um, well, you know, the, the, I mean, it's pretty, the, the netting is basically just take, like Brian described, you have a, you have a certain size uh, aperture netting and it's basically going out there and 
fixing it in the mud. Mm -hmm. You usually have flotation to, so it rises when the tide comes in to help with sedimentation and um, to create like, kind of the same effects as rocks or structures on the flats. There's some of the eddying, eddying effects to encourage clams to settle out there. And then, you know, once the netting is set, you, you, you have to kind of have a maintenance schedule, go back and check on it to make sure the sedimentation isn't taking over and actually suffocating. Um, checking them a couple of times a month to make sure that there's no rips or tears or that the nets aren't lifting up so green crabs and other predators can't get in there um, and try to reduce that. So the, so the net is not as much about keeping green crabs out, but it's providing substrate for the clams to settle well no i think it's it's an, it's, it's an excluding type so yeah, okay. it's, it's helping to keep green crabs out that's what okay. you want to do is keep the green crabs out protect what's there maybe um maybe encourage more clams to settle out underneath of it and then give them uh, give them more opportunity to grow and fe to feed and grow without constantly being attacked by you know the predators and then fencing is a little bit different. Fencing is actually like what you would see in people's yards. It's, it's not as far as looks, but it's it's erect fencing. And again, it's meant to, it, it, it'll stand up in the water column. And it's meant, to, again, to try to make it difficult or exclude green crabs from an area. And again, you have to maintain that through keeping, you know, sometimes logs will float in or keeping debris out of that and keeping that in the mud. And then, of course, you could trap inside of those fenced areas to try to help, again, remove any green crabs that might try to get in. Because I've had lobstermen tell me they've, they've seen green crabs swim um, and swim and pretty be and pretty good at it. So I think that, um, you know, it, I think towns need to look at how they're managing. We, we've been doing a lot of the same things for years, but, you know, sometimes you have to adapt to changing situations. And this could be definitely be a, a, a potentially positive, you know, um, tool for the towns to look at municipal leasing. Bailey, have you guys thought about that? Or, or? Um, well, one thing I wanted to mention was, I think it was in 2010, Hannah came down to Penobscot and helped us with an experiment where we were trying to capture uh, clam spat and encourage settlement of the wild spat. And we took lobster trap doors, which are 16 inches by 3 foot or something like that, of lobster mesh of wire. And we wrapped that with... One layer, two layer, and three layers of quarter-inch um, plastic mesh netting. And we stood the, the, that arrangement in the mud vertically and tried to, tried to capture the seed and see what we would get. And what we found was we captured hundreds and hundreds of clam seed, and they grew to a quarter to three-eighths of an inch. But our survival rate was zero. And what we noticed inside the mesh were these little quarter-inch to three-eighths inch green crab that had settled inside underneath mm -hmm. the mesh, just like Dr. Beale was talking. And they grew up proportionally to the size of the, the uh, immature juvenile clam. And this was before or at the, the front end of the recent explosion. Right. This is before we knew we had a problem. Um, we also noticed that a lot of uh, clams had a drill hole in them. And we had a moon snail problem, which is another predator. So in 2011, we, we really went out and, you know, we're looking at the moon snail population and collecting. And I think we got like 7,500 of the collars, which is the egg case that moon snails lay. And we removed five or 600 moon snails. Wow. It, yeah, they were everywhere. And when 2012 came, there were no moon snails and no egg callers. And we kind of said, hey, hey, what happened? We didn't get rid of all the moon snails. What's going on? And that's when we realized that 
apparently the green crabs ate the moon snails before they ate the clams. Wow. And the moon snails are the fairly large, very round snails. Uh, right. Actually, we have a weird species. I think it's the striped moon snail. Yeah, the, a banded or, or banded, yeah. Right, banded moon snail, which is a lot smaller. It's probably, oh, three-quarters of an inch in okay. diameter. Not the not the big two-inch okay. moon snail. Uh-huh. And, um, Bailey, for other towns who are maybe not uh, quite cluing into to the extremity of the problem or haven't experienced it quite to the degree that that Penobscot has, what, what would you recommend that other shellfish committees sort of pay attention to and look at? Yeah, they should look for signs of predation in their uh, soft bottom growing areas, like uh, in the muddy areas. The gravel and rocky area isn't isn't such a big deal, but if if you're seeing signs in the in the muddy areas, you may want to try to do some trapping or fencing or get a hold of DMR or Dr. Beal to see what uh, could be done. Okay, great. And uh, what do you think the prognosis is for the future? I, I'm not really optimistic. I, I don't think this cold weather is doing much. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it may take out a size class, but it, it's going to take a really huge effort to get rid of these green crabs. How about you, Hannah? What do you see as the prognosis for the future on green crabs? Well, I, th- I think we need to keep pushing the issue. I, don't, I think we can't let it die because, you know, history has already repeated itself a couple of times here, and it's, it's, it's having some devastating economic impacts to the shellfish industry. Mm-hmm. And the shellfish industry is very important to the state of Maine. So, I mean, I think towns need to, you know, we, we need to continue to look at education and outreach. We need to keep studying the issue. And I think, you know, hopefully towns, you know, need to keep, you know, you know. Sometimes you can do things, and sometimes you can't. But you know, hopefully, towns can look at some other tools they might be able to apply. Maybe diversify the shellfish species beyond because they can, they can manage more than just soft shell clams. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's looking at some other resources they can bring in. Looking at municipal aquaculture, continuing to survey the resources and keep an eye on things. And um, you know, there are places where these things are effective. It's just a matter of applying them appropriately. And, I, and so, you know, I agree with Bailey. I think we can't rely upon cold Maine winters to take care of the problem. Hopefully, it's helping. But you know, I think um, we all need to keep a diligent eye on this and keep pursuing options on what we can do here. Thank you. Great. Um, well, we've come to the end of our coastal conversation today about green crabs, and I'd like to thank our guests for their time and good work. Our guests today have been Brian Beal from the University of Maine at Machias and the Downeast Institute for Applied Marine Research and Education, Bailey Bowden from the Penobscot Shellfish Conservation Committee, and Hannah Annis, area biologist with the Maine Department of Marine Resources. Um, And thanks also to Chris Bartlett from the University of Maine Sea Grant and Cooperative Extension for helping compile this show on green crabs. Thanks also to those who listened and called in with your questions and experience. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. On the second Friday of each month, you can still catch Talk of the Towns, the long-standing WERU public affairs program that inspired Coastal Conversations. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from Penobscot Marine Museum in Searsport, 
which opens for the season on May 23rd with Exploring the Magic of Photography, an exhibit from the museum's collection 